So for me, coming out of university, probably the main thing that I believed that I don't believe anymore is that diabetes and insulin resistance are caused by the person or that is kind of their own fault. And that is definitely the tone that we were taught is that if someone develops type 2 diabetes, that the um, the tone was that if you develop that, that was kind of your, that was your own fault. You had not eaten properly and you had not exercised enough and therefore you had caused this. And I think that is a, such a sad view and I know that this certainly pervades still in a lot of medicine and is viewing patients with these conditions as maybe lesser or not as important or that they don't potentially deserve the same treatment. Maybe even similar to the way that um, lung cancer patients who have smoked are viewed. For me, definitely this my view changed when I was diagnosed with insulin resistance. And this was when I was still training for um, like endurance, still endurance events. That was like multi-sport events. So I would have easily still been training 15 hours a week or so. It really floored me. I was like, how could I develop this when I am... I definitely thought of myself as one of the healthiest people that I knew because of the level of exercise that I was doing and also because of the nutrition guidelines that I was following. I'm actually, in hindsight, really grateful that that happened to me because what an awful practitioner I would have been if I had held on to that belief. I mean, I probably wouldn't have ended up working in PCOS if I hadn't had PCOS myself. But also, even if I did have PCOS but I didn't have the insulin-resistant component, how, like dismissive I would have been of patients with insulin resistance had I not had that experience myself even if like the current rhetoric is that it's caused by lifestyle or something that they've done um, I don't ever feel like any judgment towards those people because I know that they have in most in in almost all cases done what they have seen as right or done the best they could in those situations Hi, I'm Claire Goodwin and this is the PCOS Nutritionist Podcast. I have PCOS too and I know how hard it can be to get the help you need. So I bring together my expertise as a registered nutritionist and exercise scientist, together with other experts I trust and people with real life lived experience of PCOS to help you get the information you need to make a real difference to your symptoms. The year is 2004. I just started at university in my degree studying nutrition and I was also studying exercise science and we finally had some new research. The new research confirmed that the cholesterol we eat, especially from things like eggs, does not increase cholesterol in the body. This was 2003 and I bet that many of you still hear every day or every year from someone saying that eggs give you high cholesterol. Interestingly, it wasn't until 2015 that the American nutritional guidelines changed to, to remove that you had to stay within like 300 milligrams of dietary cholesterol a day for heart disease. So that was took them at least a decade to change their recommendations. And most people don't really realize this today. Now, today's episode, we're going to go through some of these things that have changed since we were studying nutrition, since we've graduated university. 
But most importantly, we're also going to be really vulnerable and talk to you about the things that we got wrong. So personally, um, beliefs that we might have held based on our personal experience and why we don't believe that anymore and maybe where we got that wrong for a lot of you. So I hope that we do one of these every year or every two years. Because to me, this is really important in science, is that we have these strong opinions, but we hold them loosely, which means that in the face of new research or new clinical experience or just new awareness of things that impact us all and you guys, like other things that you might have going on, like binge eating disorder or ADHD or maybe new medications that you're taking that we can adapt and change to fit you as opposed to holding really strongly on some beliefs that we have that may not work for you. So this is a really important podcast for us and I think it's going to be a really important podcast for you to listen to, to see where we got it wrong. Uh, Maybe you have been on the receiving end of that from another practitioner as well and maybe why it didn't work for you and instead what we're seeing at the moment working for most people along with some of those nutritional guidelines that have also changed. Like the fact that, let me say it again, eggs do not increase your cholesterol. Now, if you want help with a plan that both works and you can stick to for years and years, then we have a brand new service that you've been asking for for a while. Many of you have been saying that you want to work with a PCOS specialist one-on-one. So we've made this happen. My team of qualified nutritionists specializing in PCOS are now open for one-on-one consultations. Emma and Charlie, who you know from the podcast, are degree qualified nutritionists, disordered eating accredited, and most importantly, specialists in PCOS. And they both have some seriously great experience in both thyroid conditions and also IBS and gut symptoms as well, far more than me. I've trained them in the PCOS stuff as well, so it's just like working with me one-on-one. So if you want the dedicated support, see the link in the show notes and or head to the PCOSnutritionist.com and then hit book an appointment and you'll be able to find an appointment there in the calendar to suit you. If you can't, then please reach out to us and we'll see what we can do to find a time that suits you. You can email us at hello at the PCOSnutritionist.com. So today we're going to be talking about how or really how our views of health and nutrition have changed over the years, maybe since we were, well, I mean, we're both qualified registered nutritionists and so we have both been through um, like university and nutrition school, but often too like there's times prior to that that we had views around food. and, and But I think really what's interesting is that even though since we've been qualified, some of our, like the recommendations have changed and also some of our views have significantly changed. And, and so what we wanted to go through today is just to, just to be really transparent with you about how, um, you know, our, like the way that we teach and the way that we view health has changed. And just to kind of be open and honest about this and say that, hey, we don't know everything And actually, I think that it is our responsibility as practitioners to stay curious and um, have strong opinions, but not be wedded to these. That if like research and clinical experience does change, that we are really open and willing to change with that rather than be so fixated on one approach 
that we then are blinded to other potential things. Yeah, completely. Like we we are willing to look at any and all evidence um, that is relevant and recreate a new opinion on something that is well-informed and of the times. Yeah. yeah. Like, and to give you some example of this, um, we have changed – the curriculum in the PCS protocol over 20 times in the last few years based on new information, people's perspectives, like and seeing different patients and seeing who responded well to things and who didn't and why, um, being a lot more aware of things like binge eating disorder and as they kind of come to our attention. And I think that that is something that, it can be really hard and it can be really confronting to recognize that maybe what you did did harm or maybe did not help and like and being able to and going yeah okay cool I need to I need to level up I need to change I need to um, get better at what I do to continue to help patients and 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 so also too just so that you can see that maybe if people that you are following um on social media that have really really strong opinions especially about um or have built their business about uh, through one way of looking at like nutrition and health so maybe they're like avid keto dieters or vegans that yeah or you know or uh, like have built their their business on um yeah actually Sarah Wilson I quite sugar is a really good example of that a really good example of that <laughs> When, you know, like when she actually started realizing that it wasn't necessarily the best thing for her, like suddenly she didn't have a business because she couldn't authentically follow through with that. Um, and I, that happens all the time. I mean, I've seen this over the like last five years when I, um, or at least when I first started, you know, eight years or so ago, the people that I saw, I was in London at the time and so many of the Instagram influencers there were all like, um, paleo based and sort of like often built their like brand names and their Instagram handles around paleo or something. And suddenly when that was out of vogue, they then had to reinvent themselves. And then suddenly they were like looking for the next bandwagon to jump on. And, and pretty much that was plant-based like, and yeah. And so um, it, it is, and maybe that was as well part of them seeing having the evolution of going, actually, this is not really working for me or my health, or I don't really feel this, or maybe my values have changed and I'm now much more focused on sustainability. And that's all like can be really like that, that's the evolution of people as well. But if you are following along with this and being influenced by this, then that can that can seriously affect you as well. Or a lot of the time it's people who are who maybe are not willing to move their opinions based on like for example they've built their like brand around that weight is all about calories in calories out and so if they have a patient where, who you know who's following all their recommendations and doesn't like lose weight then suddenly all they can do is put that back on the patient and say well you are not doing it properly as opposed to really looking at themselves and saying what is wrong with my approach that's not working for this patient? Completely. Yeah, I think that's that's that really like they're so wedded to their belief and not willing to look further. And that's where I think we are always trying to up-level and think outside the box and approach things from a different way, read different kind of research to try and help inform us so that we're getting, you know, such a, I mean, it's similar to like anything in life. You're constantly trying to grow 
obtain new information to be able to be have more variability or have more insight on a number of different topics. And I think the same goes for for anyone in any career, but especially in a world of nutrition where things are just so um, ever-changing and so personalized, I think, as well. And that's something we're really seeing more and more. So what has worked for a number of people might not work for everyone. And so, you know, we need to be able to approach what we do with that person in a slightly different way to really optimize um, the nutrition experience for them. Yeah, totally. So this is a real um, opening up, like us being vulnerable with you guys and just showing maybe where we've got it wrong in the past, um, how our views have changed um, to just, yeah, in, 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 in the purpose of like transparency and honesty and showing you kind of how we've like evolved. Because I think sometimes it's like so interesting when people are super like honest and say, I think I got it wrong here. Like I really think I got it wrong and like this is – uh, yeah hey hand up I I possibly did harm here and and like this is where I'm like I've changed so before we get into that though there's a couple of things that we've also noticed that a lot of the um there has been some nutrition um recommendations that have actually changed in the last 10 years that haven't or even 20 years that haven't been widely known and we're still coming up um to them and so I really wanted to talk about these as well because <laughs> It's, it's really interesting that um, they haven't been more widely publicized. So the first one, the most important one, is that eggs do not cause high cholesterol. Yeah, dietary cholesterol does not necessarily correlate to blood cholesterol. And yeah. So the reason the eggs were seen to be a problem is because the yolk contains a lot of cholesterol. And um, the thought was back in the 90s that if you – so this was when, you know, they sort of discovered cholesterol and the, and they – thought that, and this is the other part we're going to talk about, is that like they believed that high cholesterol um, and all high cholesterol caused heart disease. And so then it was all on to find why cholesterol was high in the body. And so it makes sense that if you thought that if you eat foods with cholesterol, then your cholesterol would raise. And so uh, suddenly all the foods that contained cholesterol were off the menu and replaced by all my, yeah, including eggs, but also things like butters were replaced by highly processed margarines and, and all sorts of other things to try and, yeah, the whole focus became get cholesterol out and it wasn't really looking at it, some of these replacement foods as some of the, um, as how nutrient dense they were, or how good they were for the body. It was just such a sole focus on, yeah. and I think, I think I'm just going to caveat here and go completely off on another direction, but I think that's kind of what's happening a wee bit with plant-based proteins, but we'll come back to that one. <laughs> yes. So, um, what, and it was about, uh, I think the, it was at least the mid two thousands, early two thousands where they discovered that actually this was not the case. Cholesterol in food did not cause high cholesterol in the body. And so then we can say, well, then eggs do not cause high cholesterol, full stop. That is just, there is no way that that happens. Um, and so this came out in the early 2000s, but there was no real communication about this. Like we know because we were studying, at, I was, you know, like at university and we've been, we went through these studies and talked about them, but there was not a lot of publicity about this. And um, it was interesting. I was talking to Lily Nichols the other day, doing a podcast with her on, um, she's the author of Real Food for Pregnancy. And her her take on this was that because, like, 
because you couldn't rate, you know, people can't really make any money from eggs. There's no like patent or anything like that you can make for it. That like, the food industry wasn't really incentivized to make a big song and dance about this, apart from probably the egg and like chicken association, whoever yeah. that is, yeah. but who probably don't make a lot of money and don't. In New Zealand, yeah. they definitely talk <laughs> about it. Yeah. But you know, like they and they are probably you know like only paid for by the chicken farmers who probably don't make a lot of money, and um, so they don't have the level of like PR and media swing that um, you do if you have a lot of money by um, because you're selling kind of patented ingredients and things like that. So that's that was an interesting take on that. I like I can't comment about whether I think that's right or not. I think that especially in the US, maybe the like the food industry has way more sway um than what we realize and that's probably a really good like take on why not many people know about it but um yeah it's so given that this has now been the change recommendation has now been it's now 20 years old the fact that we're still seeing um you know i still see absolutely on a weekly basis if not a daily basis patients that say oh but i can't eat um or don't eggs increase my cholesterol? Or um, I have high cholesterol, so I can't eat eggs. And it's like that, that, that is not true. Yeah, yeah. And I think, yeah, that that is a really good example of, you know, the scientific people retracting on what they thought was the case and being able to change the science. But, yeah, as we've said, it's just a shame that that wasn't more widely publicized. And you yeah. brought up a really good point that you were like, maybe it was because of the shame of getting it wrong. That's the way, you know, like, because it is always, it takes a lot of vulnerability to stand up and be like, we got it wrong. But that's, that is the thing I think we all need to keep thinking with science and things like that is that science is like an ever evolving thing. We're never going to get to the end point. It's not like like a mathematical equation where there is a one solution. The solution is constantly evolving and that is the beauty of science but you need to be if you work in this industry and you're one of the one people advocating for this you need to be I think that's where you need to have that kind of awareness of I need to be able to change and evolve my ideas and my opinions and how I translate this to my clients as well and so yeah I think that's an evolution that we've definitely gone through and will continue to go through but yeah when we first came out of uni we were definitely thinking it was more like maths and that there was one solution. Uh-huh. 100%, 100%. But then also I think that as I evolved and really questioned that, mm-hmm. I also think that I thought that, oh, no, this is the solution. I was still kind of looking for that one, one thing. Yeah. yeah. Interestingly, I think that um, what's happened over the last couple of, you know, like years or so since all of the um, fake news and um, COVID and vaccination and things like that and people being super um, – anti-questioning um, science or there's been a lot of like, uh, especially around the vaccination stuff around, um, is that we've really taken a step backwards on that, that we've really taken a step backwards on being able to really question what's going on. And I think that's really dangerous. I think that, um, you know, the memes that came out around that time were like, it's just, it's it's science, stupid. And it's like, <laughs> I think you can't, like you're, you know, this was in the in the context of people um, questioning vaccine and questioning, you know, like some of the studies around that and stuff like that. And I, while I am absolutely pro-vaccination, I really hate that rhetoric because I'm like, that's the whole point of science is there is, yeah, and there is no one truth and that, you know, if we'd, if we'd stopped searching for the answer around cholesterol and heart disease when we thought that it was like eggs and high cholesterol, then we would have been, 
no further 20 years down the track. Completely. And I think as well, there's no fine, like definite answer when it comes to science and vaccination's got to show that there's always a risk factor and there are individuals out there with a genetic makeup or, or other contributing factors that that the vaccination wasn't the answer for them. And, mm. and, and that is science. Nothing is 100%, nothing is black or white. But, yeah, we need to keep moving with what we see being, I guess, population-wise, if we're talking to a population, what seems to be the most effective. But if we're working with a patient one-on-one, we absolutely have the power to tailor and continue to tailor to get it right for that person. So I think that... Um you know, going on from this, like what have been, so since you graduated, like what were the strong held beliefs that you had that you've now? Yes, absolutely. Yeah. So it's funny. I graduated in the, um, in the, I'm going to talk about in um, university and outside of university. Outside of university, I graduated in the real clean eats era. And that was very much like, um, Borderline orthorexic was like probably the food trend that was going on there. And it was very much about everything has to be um, unrefined or um, minimally processed. And and all of those things are amazing and they are great things to strive for in your diet 80% of the time. But it was a strict obsession. And so I came out of uni in a cohort of nutrition students who were very, very strict about like, 100% perfectionism around diet. And I think that is something that, I mean, because it's more than, it was more than just like a nutrition belief, but it became probably like a bit more, um, I don't know, way of life as well. That's taken me um, a few years to really peel back and and come at life with that 80-20 um, mindset that we really work on and really focus on at the moment because I think, it was an unsustainable way of being. And I see that now and I just can see how much that 80, 20 in my life is just so much more sustainable and better on my mental health and my like social life and my energy levels and things like that. So I think that is kind of like outside of uni, how I, um, my personal beliefs have changed. How did that affect, did that kind of perfectionism affect you like socially? Oh, it was, yeah, it was really, I think, I think I, um, there's definitely like social anxiety that comes into that. And I don't know if that existed before that or not, but, um, I think I would get hyper-focused around the social eating or the social occasions where there might be extra drinking and, and work up to that in a way that I perfected everything to allow that one day to happen to Mm -hmm. then re-perfected again. So I think, I didn't, I knew that I didn't want to like, I didn't want to be excluded from social situations. So I'd absolutely go to them. I might have a case of, you know, forbidden fruit or forbidden food. So when I did have had it, had had a few glasses of alcohol or something, all of a sudden I was like riding on that pizza or something like that. Or because I was so probably, you know, it was, it was restricted and forbidden. So that's kind of I dived on it when I was a bit loosened up with a few glasses of wine or something. Or, yeah, I it was just a bad mental place where I would, if I knew I had like a big event on a weekend, I probably wouldn't do anything social the week prior or the week after because I needed to focus all the attention on that one event. Mm. That was probably so you could control, control very much control it. everything you ate for like the weekdays. Yeah, yeah, around yeah. it. So like there you go. It's like. I let this I let an event or a social situation control my life because of this like 
probably really clean eating like yeah and and it's yeah I hate to say it but like it was rife in our classes and it's really common for dietitians and nutritionists to be a type a personality that's often what leads in there and that's something you hear hear so often um and so it really thrived in that 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 food trend really thrived in in my peer group I'd say as well yeah yeah so what about what you were like taught that Mm. yeah supplements that would be a big one and I think I probably even carried that quite strictly for a while into my previous job as well where um I was really anti- um, a supplement line because I was like, you should be able to get everything from your diet and um, anything else is just, you know, a waste of money and this and that. And I think, yeah, supplements can be a waste of money if you're not taking good quality ones or you're not being specific about your supplements and making sure you're tailoring it to your personal needs. But supplements have such a place in today's world, especially if there's some sort of um, – health condition going on, something like PCOS, where, you know, we are burning through nutrients quicker. They are typically just lower or we seem to be worse at absorbing them. Um, and and the importance of those nutrients and the body functions that are needed in PCOS are, mm-hmm. yeah, uh, they're so important. So I think, yeah, my change in perspective on supplementing for um, for health as well as optimal health so I think yeah coming out of university we were very much taught that the RDIs or the recommended daily intake is all you need to go for but that is like the bare minimum of what you need to be having it's not what you need for optimal body function so what do you think changed your opinion on this personal experience or seeing other people or yeah probably but I think I personal experience probably and then working with um, I, in my previous job where I was a bit maybe anti-supplements for a little while there probably was just so general population focused and, and, and yet personally having a, um, getting hypothyroidism and understanding the, the importance of supplements there and then coming to work with, um, a condition like PCOS that has definitely informed me that, um, Yeah, and it's just like growing in life skills. And probably a really good question from that is, do you now think there is such a thing as general population? No. Yeah. No, exactly. That is exactly right. Yeah, that is the best question. There is no general population. Everyone has something. Yeah. I think that's what I have really seen as well. And in, in coming, you know, like at university, you know, you hear, well, unless, you know, like they have certain illness or something like that, the general population do not need supplements. And I go back to university now, the question I would be asking exactly that, well, is there such a thing as general population? Because, um, you know, when you even when you just look at the prevalence of so many conditions, if you add them all up, you go like, okay, so who is this general population? Because we've just gone through, like we know that, for example, 10 to 20% of the population now have PCOS. 10% have endometriosis. 25% 25% of people with PCOS have like subclinical hypothyroidism and especially like, yeah, exactly. So it's like, once you add everything up, you go, Oh shit. There's We're like, yeah, yeah, pretty much. Well, maybe we've got like, or maybe we've got like, maybe there's 10% who are we then calling them the general population? Because they're actually a minority by this stage. And then I think the other part as well to add in is that 
even if we should be at should quotation marks should be able to get it from our diet there's are the foods that we're eating if they're imported or then they're they're harvested before they're ripe or the soils are depleted are we even getting the nutrients that we're supposed to be getting from these foods like that's up for question as well and up for debate or not even that if like we walk into the supermarket and that broccoli head has been sitting there for two days and we know like the half flight of those nutrients is like you know that it loses like half of the nutrients for every day it's sitting on that shelf so by that stage that head of broccoli even if it's only been sitting there for two days is now down to 25 percent of those nutrients that it would have otherwise had so like it's it sounds so simple to be like yes and 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 you kind of like they present the information in a way that yeah you agree with that you know like it's not like we're just taking it at face value like the studies that you get presented yeah I totally agree that you you might draw the same conclusion but then again when you start questioning that you draw a completely different conclusion yeah so supplements was a big one for me and now you should I get Get a smack on the hand from my partner for the amount of money I spend. <laughs> <laughs> He's like, you're blowing the budget. <laughs> Anything else that you have, you know, that especially those, um, what you were taught at university that you now, like, don't agree with? Yeah, I think similar to the supplement thing, I definitely think it was very much an equation of calories in, calories out, and that was pretty black and white and you know if you are eating more calories than you are burning then you will be gaining weight and vice versa and I just I you know yes that made sense at the time but now working with patients who have you know hormonal things we insulin resistance just understanding so much more about the complexities of weight loss like how is that possibly true we have proven time and time again that you could be eating 1200 calories burning each day up to 2,500 calories and you can still not be losing weight. So, yeah, I just think that that was, it was, yeah, it was a um, rhetoric that, that, yeah. I would, yeah, we were definitely taught. Do you um, regret anything that you might have done around holding that belief? Um, Like the way that you viewed people or the way that you like maybe approach a situation based on that? Yeah, yeah, definitely. I probably, I, I can't say that I was working with clients one-on-one particularly during that time. So it was never, I luckily have learned this prior to working with clients. I've never pushed anyone to continue to drop their calories. But I I mean, I probably would have, you know, I probably would have said, let's try lo- drop another hundred calories at the time mm-hmm. because I would have believed that that was true. Yeah. yeah. Or maybe believe, believe that why they weren't losing weight was due to their own fault, which is probably another thing that we really learned, right? That if like, if it looked like they should have been losing weight on paper, then if they're not, then they're lying. They're not reporting. Yeah. Yeah. It was, what was the term that was used was, um, under-reporting. Under-reporting. Yeah. Yeah. The the person is under-reporting. Which basically means they're lying to you. Like they're not like adding everything and whether that be like, you know, intentional or unintentional, that's the only answer to this question. Yeah, exactly. Which is, Quite, yeah, like just very shady, and yeah. yeah, in my opinion. What about you, Claire? So, for me, coming out of university, probably the main uh, thing that I believed that I don't believe anymore is that diabetes and insulin resistance are 
caused by the person or that is kind of their own fault. And that is definitely the tone that we were taught is that if someone develops type 2 diabetes, even just the name of it was um, was kind of like, I can't remember what, it, what they termed it, but it was sort of like lifestyle diabetes was another name for type 2 diabetes. And that the um, the tone was that if you develop that, that was kind of your, that was your own fault. You had not eaten properly and you had not exercised enough and therefore you had caused this. And there was definitely a sense of um, therefore maybe even the patients shouldn't get as um, like they didn't deserve as good a treatment as then someone who had not not cause this themselves. And I think that is such a sad view. And I know that this certainly pervades still in a lot of medicine and um, talking to other friends who are doctors, this is very much the still pervades in medicine is viewing patients with these conditions as maybe lesser or not as important or that they don't potentially deserve the same treatment. Maybe even similar to, the way that um, lung cancer patients who have smoked are viewed. So I think that it is, um, I mean, for me, definitely this, my view changed when I was diagnosed with insulin resistance. And this was when I was still like uh, training for, so I'd sort of retired from triathlon, but I was training for um, like endurance, still endurance events. That was like multi-sport events. So I would have easily still been training 15 hours a week or so. And it really floored me. I was like, how could I develop this when I am, I definitely thought of myself as one of the healthiest people that I knew because of the level of exercise that I was doing. And also because of the, nutrition guidelines that I was following. So it really floored me in thinking, how could I have developed this? And it was really interesting for me when I first saw Peter Atiyah's TED talk, where he says exactly the same thing, that that is how he viewed people with type 2 diabetes and insulin resistance as a medical, as as a graduate doctor and junior doctor and then registrar. It was not until he was diagnosed with pre-diabetes himself that he was like, hold on, like there is way more to it than this. And and maybe yes, while it is definitely contributed by lifestyle, um, even people that are like doing their best with lifestyle could be making it worse based on if they're not given really good recommendations for themselves. So for me, I was eating healthy. I just wasn't eating healthy for my body. Um, I was following the general guidelines not the guidelines that suited me. So that was probably the biggest one. And I thank goodness I am, I'm actually in hindsight, really grateful that that happened to me because what a shit person I would have been if I had held on to that belief. Like what an awful practitioner, especially, I mean, I probably wouldn't have ended up working in PCOS if I hadn't developed it myself and well, not, you know, hadn't, hadn't had PCOS myself, but also, even if I did have PCOS, but I didn't have the insulin resistant component, how, um, yeah, how like dismissive I would have been of patients with insulin resistance had I not had that experience myself. And I think that having, it's not just that, that, you know, that has um, changed for me, but it's then 
really given me that empathy for anyone that's struggling from anything. Um, That even if like the current rhetoric is that it's caused by lifestyle or something that they've done, um, I don't ever feel like any judgment towards those people because I know that they have in most in in almost all cases done what they have seen as right or done the best they could in those situations. And often those situations are maybe them living in poverty, maybe them not having enough money to actually be able to make really good choices. And so it is never the person's fault. It is always our problem in science and medicine that we are and government that we're not helping people enough to do that. So I think that's probably been the biggest one for me. And, um, and just, I think that I'm talking to a lot of people um, and a lot of my friends who are doctors as well, that maybe some of them have had the same thought about weight, you know, that they came out of med school thinking that weight was a, just like what you said before, Emma, calories in versus calories out. And so if they were gaining weight, it was their own fault. They had eaten too much and exercising too little. And it wasn't until they have maybe struggled with weight loss themselves that they then start to question that and go, hold on, this is not right. And um, and there's something else going on here. So that is probably the biggest one. Um, so for me, probably my I mean, I definitely coming out of university was in the school of low fat, high carb. Um, So fat was seen to be something that you avoided almost at all costs. Um, We weren't in the super, super low fat camp of the 80s, but it was still pretty low fat. Like you would still opt for um, the like margarines versus butter and you would still go for low fat milk, low fat dairy products. Um, You wouldn't, you would get evaporated milk, coconut flavor instead of coconut milk to make your curries. Um, So that was still very much, and and I'd say that it is still very much the same thing, that fat is still um, not prioritized and feared within uh, nutrition graduates and having just interviewed a few of them for a role here. Uh, that is definitely still still the case. So that's interesting that that is still pervading. When the, especially the, the our knowledge of how heart disease is caused is rapidly changing. And we're seeing that fat may not be, very likely not the devil that it has been made out to be. So, that was I was very much in that camp, but I think that my experience relatively early on, a couple of years out of graduating and getting developed, getting diagnosed with PCOS and insulin resistance, quickly put me onto the path of starting investigating other um, things that I could do to improve my insulin, and therefore questioning that quite early on. So I don't think I held that view that low fat was the way to go for very long. Um, but in my quest of improving my PCOS, I definitely picked up on a few, uh, a few things that I now like don't agree with. And I'll go into those in a minute, but the other one that I probably, and not that it wasn't, wasn't taught at university, but it was certainly not prioritized was because my other degree was in exercise science. So my, I did two degrees, my, uh, nutrition degree, and then on honors degree in exercise science. And, and being an athlete as well was that um, I viewed that really the pillars of health were nutrition and exercise. And so sleep very much did not come into the equation. And 
Emma, you always have a good saying about this, that you cheated on sleep for exercise. And I definitely did that. I would really deprioritize sleep. Like we'd, um, you know, there might be a party on and get home, like only have a few hours of sleep, but still get up and go for a three hour run, even on like four hours sleep. So I, and, you know, going into working world, um, when I was a graduate where you worked off into the bone, uh, we actually went work too hard, but um, you might have to do some quite late nights and, I would never prioritize sleep the next morning. I'd always um, get up and do exercise. And I think this was, uh, you know, this was because we were still in that era of um, only the week sleep. And I think that that pervaded for a long time. And I'm really glad that over the last few years, I've really seen how dangerous that is. And I now actually view that sleep is the foundation of health, like not just a pillar, like it is, I think, the foundation of health. And then, so far more important than what we eat and how we, how we move. It is like, if we don't have sleep, then neither of like those things are as important. So I've really gone from completely deprioritizing it to now really seeing it as like the pinnacle. So that would probably be the next thing that I kind of picked up over that time that I now don't believe. Um, but some of the other beliefs that I've really um, picked up on since my journey of, of really healing my own PCOS the first one was that I really believed that being gluten-free and dairy-free was essential for all people with PCOS. Um, and that's something that now I don't believe anymore. And the thing that was interesting about that is that I knew that, I mean, there definitely wasn't a lot of evidence for this at the time, nor there is, is there now. But I thought based on my own personal experience that if it worked for me, then that was what was that must work for all people with PCOS. And it really wasn't until I had a few patients that were like not seeing any benefit that I really had to question that belief. And the the brilliant thing about that was that it really forced me into looking about why and what was going on and really seeing that all people with PCOS are different and we really have to get to that individual's root drivers, the drivers of their PCOS, and then put in the right treatment plan in place. Where I think previously I thought, well, um, you know, like gluten-free and dairy-free help so many people, so why wouldn't you just do it? Just remove them, like there's no harm. Whereas I really saw through working with a few patients that there was harm caused by that. There was, especially um, if they were more prone to like binge eating, that that level of restriction and probably the pressure that I put on them that they needed to restrict those foods um, in order to see success led them to um, sort of feel like they couldn't sustain that and and therefore when they'd eat those foods, they'll feel like a failure. So I it really called me to question my beliefs around that and then has thankfully led me into the work that I do now, which is really trying to identify that specific person's drivers for PCOS and then what are going to be the most important changes for them rather than just throwing everything at them and being like, well, you know, like, yes, remove gluten, remove dairy, move like, um, and also remove, totally remove sugar and do all these things. I can now like really specifically focus on the things that are going to have most impact, which is very rarely, if ever, entirely removing those foods. And instead it's more trying to add foods in that are going to help them. 
so that was the other thing I think was really previously my um, my personal experience had been focused on removing foods and that foods were the problem as opposed to now I really try and focus on more adding food in than removing it. So that was probably a big wake up call to me and in that when like not all the same and don't try and like pigeonhole people into one like one solution when and when we actually really need to treat like the individual based on what their symptoms are. And I think going on from that, probably the second part of it was that I think a big belief that I had was that you had to be really strict with your dietary changes for a certain period of time to see any results and that you really need to put like a lot of effort in. And then once you've kind of done that for a while, then maybe then you could ease off some of those. I now absolutely don't believe that. I absolutely uh, see that we can achieve really great results by following these lifestyle guidelines 80% of the time. And actually that that is like not only we can see results, but it's actually essential for people to be able to sustain like lifestyle change. Um, and if we don't, then we can actually really do cause harm by setting them up for failure in um, things like binge eating disorder and feeling like going through periods of binging and restricting. So that kind of all fed into that same thing. And I think that really that what that came from was just a like all consuming desire to figure this out for myself. And then once I did wanting to pass that knowledge onto other people and wanting to get help them get the same results as I had. But um, when they weren't trying to just trying to find ways that um, could get them the better results. And going back to what we were saying before, which was that when we were at university, if you're talking about the weight thing, if someone wasn't, they should on paper be losing weight what that, because of what they were eating and they weren't, then we were told, well, the only answer is that they're under-reporting. And I think that I definitely carried that over from nutrition to the same thing with the um, you know, excluding foods that if they weren't getting the same success and they might must not be excluding them like entirely and they needed to do like a better job. Now, there's still definitely some cases where foods need to be removed entirely if they have like intolerances and sometimes we don't see that. So dairy would still be one. So I was saying before that I, you know, had the view that everyone with PCOS needed to remove gluten and dairy. I now very much hold the belief that um, people with acne can do well for like trialing, removing it for a period of time and then adding it back in. And sometimes that has to be relatively strict to see if that's actually having an effect on you, but for a short period of time, a month or two. Um, so there's still some cases where I see that that risk, you know, avoiding it entirely is helpful, but it's certainly not for all people and try and be really, really targeted. And in most cases, and especially if they, are also showing any signs of um, a past history of kind of disordered eating, then we're trying to steer away from that as much as possible. So those are, um, yeah, definitely the area, the main areas that I, um, I see where that wasn't helpful in the past and that I have had to change what I was doing um, because of the, and, you know, because of the, the effect that it was having on people um, that, in many cases wasn't achieving the positive effect and in some cases might have been having a negative effect. So it does really challenge you and it is quite humbling to go, I think I might have got it wrong. I I really, um, yeah, I'm going to have to change my tune on that. And 
So having, being able to um, take a real curious approach to this, instead of, I've learned over the years, instead of having those strong convictions and then feeling like a, um, a fraud if I change them, I've learned that we need to have strong opinions based on what we think the research and clinical experience is telling us at the moment, but also be super open to changing that when new information comes to light. And that can be both clinical or research um, and being able to be vulnerable and humbled and say, Hey, I think I got this wrong. And yeah, no, I like, I'm going to change my stance on that. I, and I think that it was only really when seeing other practitioners do that, that I, um, I actually saw how much I respected them for doing that as well, that I then saw that this wasn't like, this wasn't a bad thing. And actually it's a really good thing to maintain this level of openness and, you know, willingness to change. So those are um, the really probably two things in PCOS that I have um, utterly changed my tune on is just the need to completely entirely remove gluten-free and dairy-free for everybody and the need to be super strict to get that benefit and that that can especially cause, well, both of them, you know, the level of restriction and also the level of um, being super strict about it can cause more harm than good in many cases. And even when you think, well, how, like, oh, gosh, like removing gluten's not going to be that big a deal. Like, gosh, surely people can do it. If for some people, yes, they can. They can um, They can do that and, it, and it's just a trial for them and they see how it goes. And if they feel better, then that's great. If they don't, they add it back in. But for a lot of people, their brains don't work that way and they or they have a history of, um, dieting, which when they restrict foods, they get really triggered by, and suddenly that leads to these periods of binging and restricting, and that can be really, um, really a, a, a problem for their mental and physical health. So, yeah, those are the, the things that I have changed. Now, stand by for our disclaimer. The information contained in this podcast has been prepared for the purpose of providing information, including about the PCOS nutritionist products and services, and is designed to support clients' overall wellness. It is not intended to provide medical advice or designed to rectify, treat, or cure any specific medical conditions or diseases. Nothing stated or shared in our podcast is intended to be and must not be taken to be medical advice. Please seek the advice of professionals as appropriate regarding the evaluation of any specific information, opinion, advice or content contained in our podcast.